Well, how are you guys doing? Yeah. Happy, happy Fourth of July weekend, right? Yeah. My my daughter said to me yesterday. I thought this is an apt uh, description of this year's Fourth of July. She said it's kind of like a Fourth of July. This Fourth of July is kind of like if you're married and you and your spouse are in a bit of an argument, but you have to go to a public gathering and act like you're happy. You know, it's like this is a strange year and it's coronavirus and you know a political environment that's not so wonderful, racial tensions and all that, to be together in a, on 4th of July and go, yeah, everything's great, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not as easy as it always is, but it is definitely worth celebrating and remembering both the cost of and the value of our freedom, right? So uh, let me just say, as I look at it, all of you, uh, I can't stand masks can't stand them at all. I'm going I'm to hesitate to use the H word, but I really can't stand them. I can't breathe that well. They fog up my glasses. Um, I, I haven't really used them much throughout this whole time, but now that it's been, you know, mandated here in our area, I'll tell you that from my perspective, it's like a fifth level issue in terms of my perspective of my rights as a citizen. You know what I mean by fifth level? I'm a follower of Jesus first. I'm a husband second. I'm a father third. I have a calling as a pastor fourth. I'm an American fifth, you know, and so whatever rights I sense or what or might want to make an argument about to me are fifth level. At the first level, when I ask and answer the question, you know, in the, in the context of what we're dealing with now, would Jesus see this as the most charitable thing for us to do, to, to show up with masks on? I think he would, and I think he would show up with a mask. The same way when I go to the wall in Israel, I put a kippah on my head. You know, it's, a, it's the right and charitable thing to do for the people who are there. And so I'm, I'm thankful for those of you who are here uh, that you are complying as well, even though it's really strange to look out on you this way. I can tell you're really smiling and connected with me. If you close your eyes now, it's hopeless. You can't, you used to, you used to, sometimes you can have your eyes looking down at your phone, but you have a smile on your face. I go, wow, they're still listening. But now I know when your eyes close and your head goes down, you're asleep. Let's pray. Jesus, would you anoint the declaration of your word, would you give us the grace to hear at the depth in which you desire to plant your word into our hearts. We pray, Lord, that your word would go beyond the, the surface or even the shallow depths where the rocks and the birds give it the seed, but that your, your word would go deep down into the soil of our hearts and that it would take root there, that it would grow and bear fruit. Lord, I pray that you would start with my heart, that you would fertilize, you would till the soil, soften my heart. This word needs to, to come home to roost before it goes out anywhere. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you're faithful and true. You are the one who has the greatest interest in seeing your word delivered, far greater even than my interest. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. And uh, about midway through, Jesus turns to a very famous parable in this passage. It's an extraordinary parable. It's, we call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm going to look at it from a little different perspective today than we're used to. Um, and really, I'm using it as just a platform or as a, 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 a diving board to get into a particular issue. Um, I, I'll just give you a little bit of context, though. It helps in getting into this word. Jesus is teaching those around him. Uh, about power and authority 
that comes from heaven. Um, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of, of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And then and Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Isn't that a powerful, powerful declaration? Jesus is saying that the most intense and powerful things of the kingdom have been, have been hidden from the wise and learned and been revealed to little children. So, Lord, make us like little children this morning as we hear this word. And then almost immediately he turns to this parable where a cocky lawyer uh, comes up to him and tests him with a question. Test, don't think of that so negatively. It's very Jewish to, to, to question the rabbi. And, and says to Jesus, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what's, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Great, great response. And the lawyer says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, boom, you nailed it. You answered correctly. Tell you what, if you go and do those things, you'll live. And then the cocky lawyer, and I, one of the reasons I think he's so amazingly arrogant is you notice when he responds to that to Jesus with a question, what he responds? You guys know his response, right? Who's my neighbor? He skipped over the loving God part, like as though he's got that nailed, right? Love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, do all that and love your neighbor yourself. He was like, good, got the God part. What about the neighbor? I'm thinking maybe he needed to go back to the God part, and we all do. But, but Jesus, he, it's reverse engineering, right? Deal with the easier question maybe first. And I think Jesus likes this. So he says, fine, we'll deal with the easy question first. And so he asks who's the neighbor, and Jesus responds to him with what the, the very first verse of his response really forms the basis of the message this morning. Jesus tells a story, and there in the story he says, see it on the screen, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, I, you know, I'm going to leave a lot of the details of the story out, and, and, and because this is my, my focus, this, the, the, this one little verse, but we know that there are a couple of religious elite that pass him by, and then we know that there's a, another man who actually comes and helps him, and uh, we're going to get into that. Either Brian will next week or I will the week after. This, the message for today is titled, You Are Needy, or my clever subtitle is, Happy Dependence Day. You are completely dependent in your celebration this weekend of Independence Day. You are wholly and completely dependent, and you are needy. And I wonder how many of you, in that passage of the Good Samaritan, as you have th thought through and sought to understand the depths of this passage, have ever placed yourself in this passage as the man who fell into need. Have you ever thought through this as, you know, I'm the guy on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and I've been beaten, stripped naked, and left half dead, robbed and left half dead. That's who I am, Lord. 
But the fact of the matter is, is this. Hardship like this is universal. If you don't know it yet, let me tell you, life is hard. And uh, troubling circumstances will always come. Life is hard. There's just no way around it. And when difficult circumstances that predominantly might come from the outside and our hearts collide, there's a conversation that breaks out between those two components. Our, our hearts begin to actually enter into conversation with those difficult circumstances, and there's a back and forth that happens, a back and forth, and the conversation can be wise and helpful to us and help us to live better lives, or it can be foolishness that parades as wisdom. And so our troubles usually, the, the hardship usually starts the conversation with us by saying, this is a really painful thing that we're going through. Why is this happening? And I will tell you that suffering, I, I, I'm standing before you today, or sitting mostly, as a representative on this one foot of what hardship looks like. There's really only two ways in which this hardship completely assail our lives, and on one foot it looks like this. It looks like brokenness and suffering that comes from, for some reason. No, look, you're needy, and I'm needy. You might be high maintenance. You might be aware of your neediness or unaware of your neediness, but you're needy, and, and, you're, and you, know, you might require me, lots and lots of stuff from people all the time, and you might be medium maintenance or low maintenance, but you're still needy. Even when you're low maintenance, occasionally life comes from the outside in and does something to you, or all of a sudden you can't get around like you'd like to get around, and your brokenness and your suffering and your neediness becomes very evident. It becomes very obvious. Can you see my neediness? Can you see my suffering? <laughs> it's relative. And as my dear friend Bert just said to me, we oftentimes learn more about God in the absence of things than in, than in his presence. And it's sometimes in our brokenness that he's most revealed. That's such a good and powerful word. But the fact of the matter is, is that there are these conversations that begin. This is painful. Why is this happening? And then from that point, it can get really messy because then there are spiritual beings that are real but unseen that begin to whisper to us, does God really care? Can his words be trusted? Did he really say? That's, I will tell you, almost anything that's going on in your life that causes you to question anything about your identity of who you are under God begins with these questions. Did God really say? Age old. Literally. Can his word be trusted? And our hearts, our hearts can either submit to those questions and, and, and we can adopt them as our own or reject them. And, and maybe our hearts begin to think about it. Maybe he doesn't really care. I mean, wouldn't a good father protect his children from these sorts of things? And suffering like this. Maybe this this man on the road, this guy on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, everybody who studies this believes he's at least foolish. This is a very dangerous road. It's still dangerous to this day. Most times when you rent a car, it, the, the rental car companies in Israel don't want you to go on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. They want you to go all the way around to avoid going through this area. It's, it's not a very safe place to this day. And for this man to have gone down there presumably by himself was not a very smart idea at the best. What he might have been doing where he fell into this trouble, who knows? Nobody knows. It's an argument from silence, but I'm going to suggest to you later there might be something else that was going on. But here's this guy laying there, 
maybe if he's conscious at all, beaten, naked, stripped, robbed of everything, thinking, where in the world are you, God? What, what have I done to deserve this? And meanwhile, in the midst of all that, maybe God himself speaks. And for us who live this side of the crucifixion and resurrection, you could condense his words back to us this way. Look to Jesus, crucified and raised from the dead. He is the crucified one who has suffered. He is familiar with everything you could ever do. He is the evidence of unfailing love in the midst of affliction, suffering your suffering, my suffering raises a lot of questions, but God would say to us that most of those questions, you're just going to have to trust him. His love is more sophisticated than our knowledge. His love is more sophisticated than our awareness of our pain. And our task in the midst of our neediness is to hear God's voice, to believe his word, and to follow Jesus when life is hard. How hard is it to follow Jesus when life is good? How hard is it to follow Jesus when life is hard? When he asks you to lay down things, to die to things, and to choose between his way and your way. How hard is it then? I'll tell you what your choice is at that point. You reject him, you deny his existence, or you follow him. It, there, there comes a point in all of our lives where we choose to, to, to submit to who he is. This is the irreducible minimum of Christianity. Jesus is Lord. We can disagree on a whole lot of other stuff, but he has the right to rule and reign and say, this is the way it's going to be. He is the, he's the ultimate my way or the highway parent. But his way is good. And this is the choice that he gives us. So the back and forth con continues. Our task, again, is to hear his voice and to follow him. Jesus says, and he's getting ready to leave, and he gathers his closest guys around him, and he says, look, guys, I'm going to tell you how life's going to be. It's going to be hard, I'm gonna, but I'm going to go. Another one's coming. He's gonna, the Holy Spirit will comfort you. And then when he's basically done, he says, look, I've told you all these things so that in me you might have peace because in this world you will have peace. Trouble, tribulation, life is going to be hard, but take heart, even though the world's going to give you trouble, I have overcome the world. So even though the world's going to battle you and hurt you, the world doesn't ultimately have any authority over you because I've beaten the world, the world in the form of, the, you know, the, the flesh and the devil. And, and so here's what happens internally with you. The back and forth conversation goes and, you know, trouble comes at us and we respond and the devil questions our responses, and we respond to the devil, and then God's word and Jesus tells us the real story about our suffering and, and how it's redemptive and it speaks hope, and then we respond to that, and the conversation goes back and forth and back and forth, and the question becomes, who wins? Who gets the final word in that conversation? I'm going to give you a clue about this parable of the Good Samaritan. The real point of this parable is not what we think it is. The real point of this parable is not simply to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And that we might realize that neighbors are like enemies or people like Samaritans. That's not, that's not really the point for us. I mean, it certainly is a massive takeaway for us to go, we need to learn to love and care for people who are not like us, who are, on, you know, we, we need to expect help and to seek and to, and to provide help in places that go across the borders and the boundaries and all these sorts of things. That's all true. But the real point of this message is to say God is like the Good Samaritan and we're like the man who's lying naked in trouble on the side of the road. Because at the end of this passage, he says, who is, so who is the one who is his neighbor? And he says, the one who had mercy on him. 
So when God comes to us in our brokenness and our nakedness and in our absolute need, half dead, and rescues us and soothes us and puts oil and, and wine, give, you know, to, gives us the oil to, is a, is a, I guess the wine was, the alcohol was the antiseptic and the oil like, was like a, a pain reliever. And he, he gives money to care. What is that like? That's like the Lord. Who, you know, where do you find Jesus? Jesus is like the Samaritan in this passage. So here's the deal. The conversation that we have, it actually, it actually affects, massively and directly affects our experiences of suffering. How many of you are suffering right now in any way? Behind a mask or... Uh, you know, whatever it may be, it, here's the way it affects it. If we respond in the midst of a, of, of a trial, everything is meaningless and God obviously doesn't care, what happens to our pain? It increases. It's like proven. It increases, you know. But if we, if, if we respond, I don't understand all of this and I don't like it and I don't want it, but I know that my Father loves me and I trust him in the midst of it, we will live with purpose and hope and perseverance. Again, my three favorite guys, my go-to guys are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God will deliver us from this fire, but even if he doesn't, we're going to trust him in it. And if we could just figure out a way to remember the promises of God in our testing, it's one of the reasons I think it's important to highlight and remember in Scripture the promises of God, maybe above all else, is that in the midst of trials that we can turn our hearts back to promises over and over and over again, then troubles begin to feel, as Scripture says, light and momentary when we compare it to the riches that we have in Christ. And it's in that back-and-forth conversation that we really need help. I mean, even those who seem, look around the room, people who you, who you go, oh, I know so-and-so, they're really strong in their faith. But even those who seem strong in their faith can be left wobbly, like me trying to walk around right now. You know, I'm 55 now. Last time I broke my leg bad, I was younger and stronger, even by just a few years, and going up and down stairs seemed easier. I'm way more wobbly now. And, and we can all be left wobbling by our sufferings, and it threatens things that we love, particularly threatens the things we love the most. Pastor Kevin's going through a series of, there you are, a, a, a podcast series in the Psalms. I don't, how far are you now? 15. He's not yet to Psalm 22, but when he gets to Psalm 22, pay close attention, because Psalm 22 is perhaps one of the greatest conversational resources for crying out to God for help in a time of, in the midst of hardship or suffering. It, it, when he gets to it, listen to what he has to say. I'm sure it will be dynamite. You know Psalm 22? Psalm 22 begins, it's what Jesus cried out of the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that honest? Honest trial, honest struggle, but it quickly turns to, you are my ever-present help. You are the one who delivers me. And, and by the end of that psalm, it's a psalm of glory. And the best advice I can give you in the midst of trial or suffering, and I'm only talking about one leg of hardship right now. The best advice I can give you is keep talking to God instead of grumbling about him. And with his help, you will grow through that trouble. And when trouble comes and all the, 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 the free-for-all breaks out, you'll be able to restore order. Write your own psalms. Write your own psalms. Are you, are you having the youth do this when they're, are they writing psalms? No. Write your own psalms. Here's how you can do it. Here's a simple formula. 
pour out your complaint to God. My God, my God, where are you in the midst of this? And then, secondly, review God's promises and his faithfulness. Even though I feel you're distant and all this stuff, I remember that you have been faithful throughout the ages to your promises, and I trust that you will be to me. And then third, find your rest and comfort in Jesus. So, Jesus, I know there are troubles in this world, and even if you don't deliver me from this trouble, I know you have ultimately overcome, and I will find my rest in you. You're my strong tower. Fourth, tell others that you know so they can find comfort in the Lord. This is actually in the psalm I'm about to read in a little bit, exactly what David does. And then fifth, when you slip and you falter back into suffering, ask the Lord for help and start the process. And just it's rinse, repeat, do it again. All right, so that's on one leg. I, I'm telling you, there are only really two massive issues that, that, that answer for almost all the hardship that's in your life. One would be suffering that maybe, and you know, maybe this is because of my own foolishness, like going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Maybe it's just an accident. Maybe it had to do with something wrong that I did. But it, it's, it's, this, it's this external form. The second form, well, let me say it this way. Suffering like this, it seems like my biggest problem, it seems like my greatest need is to avoid this kind of stuff, this kind of nonsense. But there is something more that actually causes greater damage and harm to my life in God than this. Than, than, than this suffering that causes me to be wobbly. It's called sin. It's, it's, it's actually my greatest problem, and it's the thing that I need greatest help with. It's, I need rescue from it. My greatest need is to be rescued from my sin. And the link, I- the problem is, is there's actually a really intrinsic and clear link between these two legs. You know, th- this one, the one that's suffering, that's broken, that I can't use, and the other one, that's, that's the leg of sin, and, and, and here's how it works. When I'm suffering, and when you're suffering, it oftentimes exposes the sin that's in our heart in a way that few other things can. When our lives have no trouble, when we're living trouble-free, we can confuse our personal satisfaction with life with faith. We can think, man, it's, things are going great, man. I'm living a faith-filled life. And we can think, you know, God's good, and we're really pleased with him, when actually we're not really as much pleased with God as we are with the ease that's in our lives. But all of a sudden, some hardship comes our way, some suffering comes from the outside in, and, it, and, and particularly, especially when life remains hard for a period of time, that the allegiances of our heart begin to get exposed. We begin, I be, I've grown impatient, I've, I've grown short. You know, because I'm tired of having this thing on. I've, I'm worried that it's going to stay on here like it was last time for five months, and I begin to get anxious about that, and it's not getting better fast enough. And all of a sudden, the suffering that's in my life begins to reveal sin in my life that weighs me down, as Hebrews 12 says. And let me tell you something. Sin weighs a lot. Do you agree? All right. So I need a couple of helpers because I can't do this by myself. So a couple just a couple of helpers coming up here. Don't all rush at once. I'll put my mask on if that's your issue. How about, oh, we'll get a, let, let, a, let a young buck come. Well, you can, one of you are young enough, but. All right, just one young buck, fine, whatever. All right. Thank you. All right, so you see my bucket back here? Could you carry that down to the floor? Well, actually, you might need his help. You want to help her carry that down to the floor? 
pretty light, isn't it? Don't worry about that. It's just the offering bucket. Not much in it, is there? All right, so can you open that little bag right there? And, and can you pull that out? Now, can you bring that over here and chain and put that around my leg? You can put it around my leg with this end. There you go. Perfect. Now, can you take the other end and pull that rock out of there? Can you get it out of there? Oh, you can get it out of there. Come on. You just got to be strong. All right. Can you chain that to that? You guys can do this. One hold the rock and one hold the bucket maybe. Is it heavy, by the way? Man, I got in and out of there by myself on a broken leg. Your dad could get, your dad could get it out of there with one finger. All right, all right, maybe don't drop it on the ground. All right. Well, here, just chain this, put that chain around the bucket. Perfect. Just kind of chain it up however you can. Here, you need a carabiner? Maybe that'll help you. You got it? All right, now slide that bucket out a little bit towards what. <clears throat> Perfect, right, right, no, that's good, right there. Perfect. Oh, my word, you guys, there you go, awesome, smart. Now here, come chain it on my leg. Oh, good, nice and tight, so I can't go, it's like Houdini. Perfect, y'all good, because I don't know, I don't want it to ever actually come off. All right, good enough. So. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. I could not have done that by myself. This, in a way, illustrates my neediness. So let me just ask you now. Can you see the nature of hardship in the form of a man? On one leg, I represent hardship that comes from suffering. And let's just say that the weighty sin that Hebrews 12 talks about is represented by that bucket, which I assure you, if anybody wants to come and and, uh, and check it out. Now, if I wasn't suffering so much, I could probably drag around that. In fact, I could probably throw that in a backpack and I could, I could throw it under a coat and maybe disguise it from you. But the fact that I'm suffering and I can't get around so well means I can't really go anywhere. Is my sin obvious to you right now? Is my, is my, can you see my sin? Is it obvious to you? What about yours? Can you see yours? Can you see yours? Is yours as obvious to you as mine is to you? You don't have to have suffering to have sin, but I'll tell you that when these two things 
happen together, things can get kind of explosive. And I tell you, nothing will expose the heavy sin that's in our lives more quickly than when we have hardship that comes, when we enter into hard times. And here's the good news in this. Only people who know they have burdens can be delivered from burdens. And very sadly, the method for that deliverance is a word called confession, and that word has been trashed because it's not really cool. It's not really politically correct. It's not even really, you know, it's not, it's not a cool thing to talk about other people's issues or to talk about your own issues because we're, so, we're really slow to talk about sin for fear that it could, it could threaten our own fragile egos, right? You start talking about sin, and, and all of a sudden, you know, things can fall apart, or we get labeled as judgmental or narrow-minded, and we start talking about things like sin that, that, that weigh us down, and when it, particularly once it gets exposed. But instead, just for a moment, just suspend in your mind the idea that talking, the idea of talking about sin, suspend the idea that that's just an endless stream of negativity. Can you do that for just a second? Like, imagine you're watching a movie where the lead character is a raccoon that talks. You're like, I know raccoons don't talk, but eventually you get, you get used to it, right? So imagine that all the notions that you now have that talking about sin, exposing sin and talking about it is negative, and think about it as something good. Confession is, after all, a massive part of God's rescue plan that is called good news. <laughs> sin's not good. Sin's never good. But seeing our sin, just as you could see mine, is always very good. And it's good when I can see it, and it's actually good when you as my community can see it. It's not a bad thing. And it's the goal of sin to lead us down a destructive path, a heavy burden-filled path where I, would be, I wouldn't be able to make it. What if that thing was truly chained to me, and I've got a broken leg, and, you th and, and then somebody chucked me into the pond? Did you just cover your mouth like you dads? Over a mask. That's awesome. Yeah, it wouldn't be good for me. Right? This is the nature and the desire of sin, though, is to chuck us in the lake with a, you know, in a heavy-laden way. But Jesus says, I came here that you would have life and have it abundantly. And so when we see the weight of our sin, it helps us. And I'm going to tell you just a, a few ways it helps us. I'm going to zip through this quickly. One, when you see the weight of your sin, and you can come feel this after the service if you want. I'm, I wish it stayed on my leg the whole time, but honestly, it was hurting more than my bad leg. When you see the weight of your sin, it drives you to Jesus. When you begin to, it's actually the work of the Holy Spirit to help us see with the sin that's in our lives. And once we see it, it drives us to him and to, to, for forgiveness. And that's a very, very good thing. He is, he's quick to forgive. Jesus comes for sinners, he says, not the righteous. And when we have conviction of sin, it shows, it, it's evidence that we are alive and we're responsive. And, and conviction means that we can see, at least in part, ourselves clearly. And that's a prerequisite for being able to actually be honest about who you are in a real community. Is to be able to be honest about who you are before the Lord. So seeing the weight of our sin will drive us right back to the foot of the cross. That's a very, very good thing. It's one of the reasons that daily confession is a good, normal rhythm of your life. To come before the Lord 
and adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication. Secondly, seeing the weight of your sin brings humility. A spirit-led awareness of sin always brings humility, not shame or humiliation. When you are led by the Spirit into conviction of sin, it always brings humility, not humiliation. The thing that's going on inside of you that tells you, the voice that says to you, hide and conceal your sin is not the Holy Spirit. It's the devil who's trying to keep you locked up in shame and in humiliation. But when you are led by the Spirit into a place of confession and forgiveness, it brings us into a place of humility. It, it's humility that is a brilliant reflection of Jesus himself. Jesus, even though he never sinned, was perfectly humble. And when we who are sinners throw ourselves at the foot of the cross and we're driven to him and say, forgive us, Lord, it actually makes us like him in our humility. Think about the tax collector and the Pharisee. Right? The Pharisee stood there talking about how great he was and how thankful he was he wasn't a tax collector. The tax collector stood a long way off and prayed and asked God to be merciful because he was a sinner. And Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself, like the Pharisee, will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be lifted up. Third, seeing the weight of your sin is the beginning of power and confidence in your life. And when we see our sin, when we, when we get a good picture of, of what it is in our lives, we're, and we're seeing what is actually the Holy Spirit's leadership of conviction it means we are witnessing spiritual power. This is what spiritual power looks like at work. It comes in and exposes and conceals and shines a very bright light on our lives. We see the things, that, and, and, and people who love us can see things. This is a perfectly random and aside sort of thing. But I think about this all the time. Do you know how you have an addiction problem? When somebody who's a close friend of yours comes to you and says, I think you have a problem, problem with this, that's how you know you have a problem. Because when somebody who knows your life well, as close to you, comes to you and says, I really think there's a problem here, you know how much that takes to do that? And, and so um, when, when we see the Holy Spirit's conviction, the, the power that we, that we see, it, it, it somehow feels different from the power of the world. It isn't like worldly power. It feels, spiritual power feels like a, it's like a struggle or a weakness or a neediness or a desperation. It drives us to simply, it's, it's, it's like in three words, I need Jesus. This is what, what the, the weight of our sin brings us to in terms of power and confidence. The most powerful words you could ever say in your life are, I need Jesus. And so what we do essentially, and I wish I had it still strapped me so I could make this really loud and, and demonstrative, I could chuck the chain down there, is we need to lay the weight down. We need to lay it down. But to lay it down, because most of you here are adults, doesn't mean you can do this. God doesn't like childish confession. I'm convinced of this. You know what I mean by that? You know when you're kids and you get caught doing something and you're like, I'm sorry, Okay. And you kind of fade, you're, you know, and somehow you turned it back around on the person who's, a, you know, like your mom's like, you said, I told you to clean your room. You didn't clean your room. You're like, I'm sorry, okay. And then you're like, you know, you're trying to make mom feel guilty that you didn't do what you're supposed to do. Yolanda, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're shaking your head. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about, too. And, we, you know, this is like, you know, youth group stuff, you know, where you're like, you call somebody a name, and then they're like, oh, I'm hurt. And you're like, I'm sorry, okay, get over it. And you transfer the guilt of what you did wrong to the person you did it to. And, and, you know, when we do this, 
to God. Like imagine getting caught in a massive lie. You get busted doing something horrible. Let's just say you're a married person. You're caught in some form of unfaithfulness. And you confess in your anger, I'm sorry, okay? Like, I don't think that's very impressive to the Lord. (laughs) When we confess our sins to God and to each other, and we do it in a way that is full of excuses or anger, it's unbecoming, it's hurtful. And to lay the weight of our sin down, it means we have to look more carefully at our hearts. Consider this as a guide. It'll be a while before Kevin gets there, so I'll just read you some of this. This is the 51st Psalm. When David was caught, had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my sin. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you! And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. He goes on and on and on and on. When we confess our sins to God, we're getting real about it. You might not realize what David just said, but all sin is personal. It's against God. It's, it's against his character. Our sin says, I want my independence. I declare my independence every day. I don't want to be associated with you. I want more than you can offer me. I know what's best for me. And worst of all, this is the most scary of all, but this is exactly what James 4.4 4 says. When we sin against God, we say, God, I hate you. This is what James 4.4 4 says. We don't always know we're saying these things, but it's the nature of the heart. There's usually more going on down deep in the spiritual realm than we can see. And so let me cut to the solution. I have to really just broad brush this today because, because of time. guy laying there on the road to Jericho, beaten, half naked, penniless now, probably came to a point, even if he was a prideful guy like me, that when people walk by and say, hey, man, you need a hand, he can say, no, I'm good. He probably had passed that point. There's a C.S. Lewis book in the series, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, called The Horse and His Boy. Anybody read it? And you remember the character Shasta, who's in the, he endures this really long journey in which there's nothing, nothing but hardship. Nothing goes right the whole time. And just at the point when all hope is lost, he notices this quiet presence around him in the form of breathing, quote, on a very large scale. It was, it was Aslan who's the Christ figure in the story, right? You know this, Aslan. He'd been accompanying Shasta the entire time through the difficulties. And, and Shasta says, who are you? And Aslan responded, one who has waited long for you to speak. The inference from that is, is that I've been here to help you all along. There are just some things for which heaven waits on earth. I've been waiting for you to cry out and to acknowledge your need. How many of you think it's easy to talk openly to the Lord? Yeah, some of you, you know, probably intercessors, you know, you're, you're, you wake up at 222 and God's laid stuff on your heart. And, and I, I, sometimes I find it really easy. Sometimes I don't find it easy at all. I need help. Um, and, and, and during hard times, um, it's, sometimes it's hard to ask God for help. Why? why? Why do we resist asking him? Well, 
I don't know. I don't know the reasons why, but take, take for example, anxiety. How many of you are ever anxious about things? Yeah, what you know, anxious people, is that you know that you're needy in your anxiousness, but your instincts are to worry your way through doomsday scenarios so that you can be better prepared through your, because your anxiety helps you to be prepared. Right? Meanwhile, the scriptures urge you to pray rather than to feed your anxiety. The answer in your anxiety is not to feed your anxiety. It's to cry out to God. Our inclination, though, especially as Americans, independent Americans, 4th of July, woo, is to live self-sufficient lives. And when there's trouble, we first try to figure it out on our own. We second try to figure it out on our own. We third Google it. We fourth YouTube it. And fifth, we quietly and privately ask somebody really, really close to us for help and ask them not to tell anybody. Then we worry, and then we get mad because we feel like nobody cares about us. Sometimes it's not that. Sometimes we hide because we like our sin more than we love God. And we don't cry out to help because we're, you know what? I know you, and I, I don't really want you to go away. Literally, dozens of reasons I could give you for resisting asking God for help. And I, I know I resist asking for help. I prefer to give help <clears throat> and to keep my neediness to myself. I don't like having a boot on so you can see it. I like to hide it. But crying out to God for help, is, is it's one of the most spiritual things you could ever do. Again, turn to the Psalms and read through the, the treasury of poems and songs that cry out to God for help in times of trouble. You could literally spend a summer in the Psalms with Pastor Kevin and learn a lot about what it means to cry out to God in, in our neediness. I don't think there's any greater treasury for what it looks like for us to, to appeal to heaven in the midst of our neediness. All right. In the interest of time, I'm going to move on. So cry out to God. Say help to God. You know, help, Lord. He's been waiting long for you to speak. Secondly, this one's really going to step on your toes. You ready? Say help to other people. Say help. Help me to other people. Believe it or not, this is where it's gonna really going to blow your minds. Doing that is a very basic building block of spiritual community. You build spiritual community by asking the community around you for help when you're in need. It's actually a basic building block. The basic way that Christian community is formed is not by me offering to help you. It's by you crying out in your need and then me being able to respond to that or you being able to respond to my need. I actually learned this in the church planting world that if you're meeting somebody who's, who's unchurched, one thing you could do is you could go and ask that neighbor, can I help you mow your lawn? And you go, wow, you know, that neighbor's like, He's cool. Jeff's cool, he came and helped me. But even greater, when I go to that neighbor and say, is there any way you could help me? Could I borrow some tool of yours? What have I done when, I've, when I say that to this neighbor? I've put myself in their debt. I've made myself poor and made them strong. And this is a basic building block of Christian community. And the truth is, asking other people for help makes asking the Lord seem easy by comparison, though. The Lord already knows, the, the, the Lord already knows that we're weak. <laughs> He's just waiting for us to acknowledge it. He's, he's been waiting a long while for us to speak. But other people, they don't know me that well, and I desperately want to appear competent and all good. 
for the people around me. So I'm laying there on the road to Jericho, beaten, half naked, and stripped of everything. And I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. We don't see our interdependence on each other as a strength. We don't see crying out for help as something that makes us strong and honorable and a good friend. We see it as something that makes us weak and needy. And but the truth of the matter is, is that crying out to each other for help should be simple. And I'm going to give you a simple, basic starting place for crying out to help. Are you ready? This is so simple. I promise you, every one of you can do this today and go, huh, that wasn't hard, and I'm, on, I'm off to a good start. You want to know what it is? Ask for prayer. Just ask another believer for prayer. It's so simple. It's actually, I could, if we had time, I would come hang out at my house and we'll talk about it. I could, we could talk about a rhythm of asking for prayer that's actually very redemptive, where you put your need out there, like, hey, you know, I'm really tired. I'm not sleeping well because of this leg hurts me every night. And I pray that I get good sleep. And then secondly, I would say, so if you could pray for me according to scriptures that I would find my rest in Jesus, that I would lay down my, my, my burden with him, that his yoke is easy. And I actually give you something specific that you would begin to pray spiritually over me that God, that I would find my, my joy in him or something like that. There's something so powerful in this. It's very, very simple. The simplest way to ask another believer for help is to just ask for prayer. The Apostle Paul wrote, brothers, pray for us. And if our desire is first and foremost to be, to be perceived by the community around us as competent and in control, then we won't ask for prayer. What we'll do instead is we'll go to the local bar and get real. And if we know that people like us are by nature spiritually needy and God's plan is for us to come to him and other people, we'll, we'll ask people for prayer. We'll invite them in. And so he, here's the simplest way to ask for help from another Christian. It's the basic building block for demonstrating your needs. Just ask for prayer. And then do these things. And this is, I don't, I only have a couple more notes and I'm done, Brian. So you can come on up and I don't have a, I don't have a staggering finish. What if you did this, just as an experiment? Oh, well, let me just ask you this question. Is there anything at all in your life right now for which you need prayer? If there is, raise your hand. Okay, if there isn't, raise your hand. There's nothing in your life you need prayer for? Raise your hand. Well, that's an incredible, incredibly good problem. Um, but the fact is, is if we spend a little bit of time and think about it, each of us would begin to recognize areas in our life where we're standing in the need of prayer. And so I'm, step one is ask. And then become watchful and mindful of the way the Spirit moves through this. If you are struggling and suffering and it's exposed sin in your life, of course the starting place is to confess your sins to God, confess to one another, be healed, be forgiven. But then in our neediness, crying out to others and saying, hey, would you be willing to, to pray for me in this area? And then you begin watch, you become watchful of how God will answer that prayer. And then when he does, let them know that God answered that prayer. Why? It's extraordinarily powerful, encouraging. 
Some people I know, my wife included, keep logbooks that don't just include what she's praying for, but answers to prayer. You know what that reminds her to do? Reminds her there's some things to keep praying for. <laughs> I believe that when we do this, when we are watchful and we let others know and we celebrate God's answers to prayer, it is like setting up a monument in Scripture. People would oftentimes set up a monument when God had moved and name it, like setting up stones on a riverbank so we don't forget God's mighty deeds. Bethel, you know. Secondly, well, maybe thirdly, one, ask for prayer. Two, let others know when the prayers are answered. Three, say thank you. Thank you to God. Thank you to the people who pray. There's a story of uh, old, uh, oh, he's the president of Asbury College years and years ago, tells of flying on a trip to Mexico, and he notices a guy sitting next to him who's taking notes about Mexico. It looks like Ph.D.-level notes. It's every margin's filled, notes everywhere. And he asks him, he says, what do you do for a living? Turns out the man's a janitor. He was very surprised that this janitor would be so in-depth in his notes. And he says, so the janitor says, what do you do? And he says, oh, I'm the president of a Christian college. And he says, are you a Christian? He says, no, I'm an atheist. And he's like, well, this is going to be a short conversation. And then the Ph.D.-level atheist janitor says to Dr. Kinlaw, you know, I got to tell you something. He said, a while back, I got these really bad migraine headaches, and they wouldn't go away. And I said, they wouldn't go away, they wouldn't go away, they wouldn't go away. And finally, I remembered that people like you, Christian friends of mine, would pray. So I decided, what the heck? And he said he prayed a prayer like this, God, if there is a God, I'm coming to you to tell you I got a real problem. And if you're real, and if you hear this, and if you can do anything, and if you care, could you take my headaches away? He goes about his life for a little bit of time, and he realizes one day his headaches are gone. And he's like, huh, that's bizarre coincidental, strange, maybe I stopped eating something, or, you know, he's thought about it, and finally he thought, you know what? That's a cop-out. So he goes back and he prays his prayer. God, if you're real, and if you heard, and if you cared, and you did that, thank you. Dr. Kinlaw said that atheist janitor on a trip to Mexico expressed more faith than most of his colleagues. Jesus heals ten lepers, but only one comes back and he gets down at his feet and says thank you. Only one receives that complete healing. So th say thank you to God in your neediness when he does answer and to other people who have offered you spiritual help by getting down on their knees and losing sleep to intercede. They've gone before the Lord and said, take days from my life and give them to them, my friend. And then God answers the prayer because he's like, man, that prayer moves me. Go back and say thank you to the Lord and thank you to those friends. And just to wrap it up, In absolute, complete transparency, I'm discouraged a lot of times at how little priority we give spiritual matters when it comes to our thankfulness. 
I hear people all the time express thanks for physical health or for a job following unemployment or something that, they, that we can see. And I, there's nothing wrong with that. What I'm saying is, is that I rarely hear people express thankfulness for the depth of answer to prayer and spiritual matters as compared to those physical things. And I believe that our spiritual matters deserve priority. I'm a follower of Jesus first. It's at a very, very low level that I really care or I should care about God answering prayers about other things in my life. Like, what if I go out of this world destitute, penniless, poor, with nothing, but on fire for God? And here's why it matters. Here's why that matters so much. If our thankfulness in this life is grounded on things like the lack of coronavirus and getting along with people over racial tension and which president's going to win, if we are only thankful in the solutions this world can bring to this, the things that we can see with our eyes, which don't have any longevity, they're meaningless. The book of Ecclesiastes says it's like a vapor, these things. Someday we're going to have no reason to be thankful because someday we're going to be unhealthy and someday we're going to be in need that the, that the physical world, things we can see with our eyes can't answer. And suddenly, and I've seen this, I've seen people who've died in faith. I just recently saw a, a, a man who be, was, a, was a new, a good friend. I watched a man die in faith. It's a beautiful thing to see. And I've seen people claw their way into the next life. And this man that, that Brian and I were, were there when he passed away was reduced to nothing in this world. There was nothing left in this world for him to be thankful for. And if all we're going to do is be thankful for the things we can see with our eyes, there's going to come a day where we won't be thankful. And someday our thanks will turn to bitterness because we'll feel like we've been cheated. I'm sure that guy on the road to Jericho who fell into that problem was thankful. And next time we're going to get into not the fact that you're needy, but the fact that you are needed. I'm sure that guy was thankful for the physical help that came his way that could be seen. But I often wonder when I look at this story and I get my eyes go over verse 30, I often wonder what his life in God was like before this, during this, and after this. Was he able to look at it and say, Lord, if a Samaritan who is seen as an enemy of me would cross the street and help me and show mercy on me, how much more so God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or did he completely just forget God even existed? I don't know. And so, Father, I pray in Jesus' name for the holy, your Holy Spirit to create a, a place of safety and sanctuary where we can take our spiritual masks off where we can stand up and reveal the cast on one leg and the chains on the other they're linked in most cases, they're pretty well hidden. And if we're ever going to really be a dynamic 
deep spiritual family, we're going to have to open up. So Jesus, we cry out to you in the midst of our neediness. We say, help us, Lord. Help yourself to us. Come and have your way. So I pray you convince the one who's furthest from you today that you're real. I pray the one who's least likely to call out to you that they would hear your breathing on a very large scale and ask who you are and hear you respond, the one who's been waiting for you to talk. And I pray, Father, for a spiritually discerning community that we would feel safe calling out to you for help, but also that would have our eyes open looking across the other side of the street, that when we see our brother or sister or even our enemy lying in need, that we would cross to the other side. Oh, Lord, what would you do with a community like that? You're able to stand and worship. Let's close out and worship if you want to come and pray. and Drag your chains up here, your stone, and leave it at the altar with mine. Come on, however the Lord leads you.